Federated learning is machine learning without a centralized data source. Federated learning enables mobile phones or edge servers to collaboratively learn a shared prediction model while keeping all of the training data on device. Mike Lee Williams is an expert in federated learning, and he joins the show to give an overview of the subject and share his thoughts on its applications. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start by talking about some privacy concerns around machine learning. What kinds of information in machine learning is considered sensitive? Are there laws around what kinds of features should be kept private? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's is the short answer to the question. I mean, I think probably the example that we're all most familiar with is, or you know, that's most salient for many of us is photos. Like, you know, we many of us upload our photos to the cloud these days, and they disappear to you know most of us we know not where, and machine learning is done on them and other kinds of processing tasks are done on them. And I think for many of us, that creates, at least at the back of our mind, a feeling of discomfort. Like more concretely, there is, of course, medical data. A lot of our healthcare data is recorded digitally and potentially gets transferred between different entities, different healthcare providers. And in the US, there's HIPAA, elsewhere, there are equivalent laws that constrain the ways in which that data can be managed, auditing access to it, these sorts of things. Um, but the the big, like 900-pound gorilla of regulation in this area that really only arrived in, I think it was May 2019, so not that long ago now, is, of course, the European Union's GDPR. And that has kind of changed everything and changed nothing in some ways. Like it's not really clear how it's going to be enforced yet. So I'm going out on a bit of a limb here when I talk about what its implications have been. But generally what that law creates is a a legal version of an idea I think most of us understand when we talk about data, which is data is risky and you are under a sort of an obligation to the source of the data when you take become a custodian of that data. So you want to minimize the amount of data you collect. You want to ideally not store it for any longer than you have to. And you want to act on the source of the data's preferences. If they say, can you delete that data? Then yeah, you better delete that data. And that, those kinds of ideas are enshrined in GDPR. And the GDPR applies to anyone who's a, a resident in the European Union, you know, which is you know, a very, very large group of people, 400 million people or whatever it is. So it's very difficult to conduct like an internet scale business without being affected by GDPR. And California, as of, I think, January of this year, has a very similar similar law. So that's kind of the environment, the legal environment in which we're, we're living. But at least, at least half of the problem from the point of view of someone who wants to do machine learning with data is the preferences of their users, which are you know, may not be legally binding, but if you want customers, you need to think about their preferences. So that's sort of the, the environment we're working in. So one simple but effective way is to mask information. Can you explain what masking means? Sure. The obvious thing to do if there's a piece of information that you should not have is simply to not collect it or censor it from your data. So let's say you're doing a you know, it's election season right now and we're recording. Let's say you're doing a survey. Um, you might choose not to record specific pieces of information, such as, I don't know, you know, gender, race, zip code, things like this. And in that way, you plug the most obvious security privacy hole in the data, which is that you have the data. 
That only gets you part of the way, though, because it's quite often possible to infer, to fill in the blanks, if you like, from this masked information. So an example, you know, I could, I could ask a lot of questions about you and choose not to record your zip code to mask that piece of information out of my data set. But I may ask enough questions about you to make you unique in your zip code. And you know, I can invert the data I have and figure out where you live based on the other answers you've given me. So masking is a like a very is a crude is perhaps not the right word, but it's it's a simple approach that will, will that was often the place to start, but is not sufficient. And of course, you lose the information. Like if you do your masking well, then you do not have access to information that is potentially useful for whatever downstream task I want to do. So if I want to learn about you know the distribution of income in the United States and I choose not to record people's zip code then clearly I am hamstrung in that analysis. I can't do a good job because I don't know where people live. So what we'd like really is some kind of way to record that information in a way that makes it accessible to the analysis while keeping it at arm's length, if you like. Could you define the term differential privacy? Yes, this is one of my my favorite subjects, differential privacy. So differential privacy is, is an extremely formal technical field by like by the standards of machine learning it's actually a pretty mature field as well like the true maths and statistics nerds go to differential privacy talks at conferences it's a very rigorous field compared to the rest of machine learning which is the wild west the basic idea however like having said that which might have put you off the basic idea actually is pretty simple so let's say again we're back to this income example I'm in a room with 50 people and I want to know the average income of all the people in the room. And most of these people are quite reasonably not willing to tell me their income. What we'd then do, or the differential privacy approach to solving this problem, is to ask everyone in the room to pull up you know, Python or whatever and, and generate a random number with a mean of zero normally distributed you know, plus or minus $10,000 or something to their salary. So they take their true salary and they perturb it by some random number. And they tell me that perturbed value. And then I combine all the 50 values from the people in the room and take the average of those 50 perturbed values. And the nice thing about this is I didn't actually see anyone's like naked salary, if you like, anyone's unperturbed salary. Now, in the case of this example, I, I can probably, you know, I, I now know in the ballpark of what your salary is. But the basic idea that I didn't find out the true answer, a true value is there. But despite adding all this noise to the data, it's a, pro it's a statistical property of the normal distribution, you know, the bell curve, that when I take the average of these values, I recover on average the true average. So I do indeed get a, like a good idea of what the average salary is in the room. That's differential privacy. And you know, there are, there are limits to this. Like if it's a categorical variable, I can't ask people to, I don't know, perturb whether they're left-handed or right-handed you know you're one or the other so the the detail i can't you know you can't add a normal distribution to your handedness so the details of how you perturb the data vary a lot and the ways in the implications of that perturbation for how accurately you can recover the information are, you know that's how the sausage is made that's the, the field of differential privacy but the basic idea is um is, is simply add noise to the data such that the aggregate value you're interested in, the average or whatever it is, is still correct. When people think about privacy concerns with big data, they often think of data breaches and direct access to data. 
but this is not the only way to get information. Explain how an attacker can get information from a trained model without accessing the underlying data. Yes, so this is um, the new frontier in, in security, I think, in a lot of ways. Like machine learning models are, in some ways, really not much more than lossily compressed representations of the original data. So if you think about, you know, in, you're in high school and you are measuring the length of a string by uh, of a spring and putting different weights on it, and you you plot the you plot the length of the, of the spring and the, how much weight you put on it, and you put little X's on your chart. That's your original data. And then the bit in high school where you drew a straight line through that data and recovered Hooke's law or whatever it is, um, that's that's basically machine learning. Like you are summarizing the hundreds of numbers you recorded with a couple of numbers. It's just lossy compression in that sense. And you know, you capture the broad brush behavior of the data whilst compressing the data. And just like lossy compression, you know, a lossily compressed compressed version of a photograph of of me, I mean, depends how lossily you compress it, but you can probably still figure out what I look like from that photo. The details of how this can be done with machine learning, it varies from completely trivial attacks where it's obvious what was going on in the original data to very, very challenging situations. And generally speaking, it's easier for simpler machine learning models to recover or recover the training data or, or invert the model is the fancy way of saying it. So in that situation with the spring and the weights, it might be quite easy to figure out what was going on with the original data. Another example where it might be quite easy is what's called a, a bag of words model, uh, a language model where each word has a parameter. So, you know, the word car has the number 3.5 and the word garage has the number 4.8 or whatever. A machine learning model which goes through training and if goes through training and then the weight of a particular word changes, you can pretty much guess that that word occurred in the original data. So if the weight of the word garage changes, then probably the, the text I trained it on had the word garage in it. Like the evolutionary tree of machine learning, though, we're, we're now at the level where even the people building the models don't understand them. And in that situation, inverting a model or figuring out what was going on the training data is much harder, no question. You know, there are good reasons to want to do that for not just security reasons, you know, I'm a secure, I'm an attacker and I want to figure out what's going on the training data, but there's also the issue of machine learning interpretability. Like, it's a problem if we don't know how machine learning models work and these kinds of attacks, also not attacks, they're actually reasonable good things to do to interrogate what's going on with your model. So there's a lot of work going on in this area, but the basic takeaway is a machine learning model is just a an echo a compressed version of the original data and that has implications for how well hidden the, the original data is in the model and you know not very is the basic idea what are the most common ways of providing dim differential privacy so we kind of touched on like this, this simplest example is i want to add gaussian noise a normal distribution there are about 500 different ways of saying a normal distribution. I'm sorry, I'm switching between them. Gaussian noise, normal distribution, bell curve, they're all the same thing. That's the most obvious thing to do when adding noise to continuous data, by which I mean numbers, and that's you know often what we're dealing with. You can apply that kind of noise to an image, you can apply it to tabular data, you know, someone's blood pressure, height, weight, all these things. And that works fine. It becomes quite challenging, however, when you've got what 
the fancy way of saying it is categorical data, data where there's you know there's there's a finite set of there's an enumeration of possible values, and the way you perturb that data is you know generally a, a trickier problem to prove things are going to work out okay, to prove the data will not be recoverable, and to prove that the downstream analysis is going to work is going to recover approximately the right answer despite adding the noise. So I think that's kind of all I can really. Say. I'm a little bit out of my wheelhouse on differential privacy, so that's probably the only like the the extent to which I can get concrete about the the approaches, the use cases I can I can talk about a little bit, and that might be at least as useful. Like the most I think the most prominent user of differential privacy on Earth right now is Apple. They've made this like a selling point that they do not have access to your data, and there's two ways in which they avoid doing. One is they apply machine learning models on on your device. So they want to make a, a prediction, a categorization of your photos or whatever. And they apply the model on the device. So they don't transfer the data to some high powered server and apply the machine learning model and then give you back the answer. They have you do it on your very powerful these days phone. But the other way they do this, the other way they avoid touching your data is differential privacy. And they do this particularly, my understanding at least, you know, I, I don't work at Apple and of course they're, they're not you know, not famous for being open with what they're doing. But I think the, the most prominent way in which they've applied this stuff is to metrics of usage, so operating system metrics. And they make clear that they are dithering, adding noise to this data and hopefully, you know, providing, you know, a warm, fuzzy feeling for the user that they are contributing to making the software better whilst also not revealing their own patterns of usage. Let's go ahead and get into the topic of federated learning. Could you define the term federated learning? Sure. Sure. So already touched so far on you know what machine learning is and the kinds of problems we're worried about, about access to data. In general, machine learning models are better when they have access to more data. But there are all these reasons why we don't have we don't we can't or don't have access to this lovely data. We of course privacy is, you know in some ways, the big one these days, for, you know, for all sorts of very good political reasons. The other reason we might not have access to this data is just good old-fashioned engineering constraints. Like, the data starts life is born on some remote device, a phone, an IoT sensor in the jungle, a mine, you know, who knows where. It's born in some far-flung location. And the very act of getting it back to some centralized server or data center is challenging. Uh, we just don't have the resources to do that in terms of bandwidth or battery power. And maybe we can get it back, but now we now we have another problem, which is we need hard drives to store all this stuff on. You know, potentially, it's a very large amount of data. So federated learning, the goal of federated learning is to get around this issue that, we, that having access to data is sometimes impossible because of privacy concerns and sometimes impossible or undesirable because of engineering constraints. And the, the algorithm is pretty simple there are is, is a zoo of algorithms and i'm going to describe the most the simplest one i think which is called federated averaging so the world starts like this i'm a i'm a server and i have a bunch of phones that are acquiring acquiring data and i'd like to train a machine learning model on that data so what i do as the server is i send an instruction to all these phones saying can you train a model that is of this type on this, the data that you have. Don't talk to each other. Don't tell me about the data. Just train a model on the data you have. Each of these phones doesn't have a lot of data. So the individual models are not, not great. They might capture, you know, the specific patterns on that phone, but they're not going to capture the, you know, the great variation that exists elsewhere. But here's the clever bit. Instead of having them send me 
as the server the data back. I have them send the trained model back. And then, you know, the, the clue is in the name federated averaging. What I do with those models that I got back from the phone is the most obvious thing you could think of to do, which is take the average of the models. And by take the average, I mean, literally, I find the first parameter, I find its value in every model I've been sent back, and I take the average. And I, maybe I do something clever like weight your phone more, Jeff, because you had more training data than my phone, for example. But the basic idea is I take the average. And now I've got a combined model that in some ways captures all the, the, the data that was present on all the phones. And we're not done here. We'll do several rounds of this. So I'll send this averaged model back to the phones and say, could you train again with some new data? And instead of starting from scratch, start from this model I just sent you. And that's a that's a round of federated learning. And we'll do this many times. And there's you know devil in the detail about when to do it and how to do it such that we don't waste your battery or your bandwidth and so on. And maybe we should get into that. But the basic idea of doing several rounds of this training leaves us in a, in a state, us here being the server and all the phones, where we all have the same model. It is has been trained effectively on all the data, the, the union of the data on all the phones. But crucially, none of us had to share directly share our data. And that plugs the most obvious hole in machine learning, which is in a very literal sense, I had to send my I had to share my data. And also it, it saves power and bandwidth because as we mentioned, a, a machine learning model is a compressed representation of the data, you know, potentially by hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of times smaller than the, the source data, which means I'm sending as a phone less data around. And that's significant, not just because bandwidth is expensive, but because particularly in the case of phones, using the antenna is the most demanding in terms of battery life as well. It's, it depends what you're doing, but it can be more demanding than the, having the screen on. So we want to minimize the amount of data we're sending around from that engineering constraint point of view. So federated learning really addresses to a greater or lesser extent, and we've already kind of touched on some of the ways in which this isn't going to completely solve the problem on these concerns of privacy and engineering resources. Federated learning was first coined and used by Google. Could you explain the setting in which federated learning was first developed? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Google's use case for federated learning is in, in is in some ways the the mo the perfect and most obvious use case. And it's not a surprise it came out of Google. So they are, of course, the the maker of Android, and they are also a, a company that you know, f for better or worse, has a reputation for as an ad tech company being potentially a little bit cavalier about privacy. Federated learning is a great way of addressing that. And I don't I don't just mean it's PR. It really is like a rigorous, great way of addressing that. They're a little bit cagey about exactly what they're using it for. But the use case they've said the most about is um, one we should, we should talk about in a little bit of detail, which is um, Gboard, the predictive Google keyboard. So I don't have an Android phone, so I may be mangling some of the, the nouns here. But the basic idea is you write something and it predicts the, the next word. And in that way, you can type more quickly. Now, the problem with them... Uh, you know, this model works with machine learning, of course. And the problem with that is in order to train the model, you've got to share everything you're typing. Essentially, you go and install a key logger. And for, for, you know, for very obvious reasons, people don't want to do that. And federated learning gets around that by having people incrementally train a shared model with pooled resources where the, the model is combined into an average. And this has Federated learning works particularly well in this situation for a couple of reasons. One is that 
the user of the phone generates training data without trying. It's just like part of the exhaust of like the a waste product, if you like, of using a phone as you generate training data for this model, whether you like it or not. It's completely passively generated at huge volume. Um, so there's a lot of training data out there for Google, and it's very, very much higher quality than the training data they would get by, for example, downloading the full text of Wikipedia, which is you know, written in, you know, generally pretty good English compared to, for example, text messages, but is not how people write text messages. So it's not going to result in good predictions. So this is the other way in which this is a good setting. By using this technique, Google and people using the technique elsewhere can very quickly pick up changes in language, unique features of language that are particular to ver a specific location or a specific time, like a new word that people have started saying on Twitter or whatever is going to show up in their model rather more quickly than it would if they were once a year batch training on some data set they grubbed together from Wikipedia or something like that, which is what the rest of us mortals have to do who do not have access to um, Google's user base. So how have the opportunities or the uh, necessary fields of federated learning increased in recent years? So, yeah, that's a great question. We've sort of emphasized privacy as the issue that federated learning addresses, and it is. And, you know, that makes most of us think about our own data. But, of course, there are much larger entities that have privacy concerns than just me and my baby photos or you and your salary or whatever. There are hospitals drug and medication research entities you know these are very very secretive organizations that also have like huge legal responsibilities around the data there are insurance companies that ha whose data is essentially how they make their money is that the training data around rare events is incredibly valuable so one of the ways in which federated learning has evolved over the last few years, I think the federated averaging Google paper was 2015, 2016, something like that. So as a field, it's about, it depends how you you count. Like ideas like this have been around for 20 or 30 years, but the branding as federated learning is about five years old. The changes in those five years really have been its application to new fields like insurance and healthcare. So outside of the traditional interests of technology companies, these are very, very high stakes industries, a lot of money involved, and also, you know, potentially the opportunity to make really positive impacts on people's lives with things like, you know, cancer treatments and stuff like that. And then the other area of progress active research is really what we talked about at the start. These concerns that you can recover the training data even from the model. And that's true of federated learning. It's a pretty hard problem on the spectrum of like machine learning attacks, but it is possible. And if you are doing something like, using federated learning to protect healthcare data, then you better make sure it's impossible. And guarantees around that with things like differential privacy and then secure aggregation, which we haven't talked about, the other area of um, really active, active work right now. Tell me how a model gets updated in a federated learning process. Let's go back to that example that I'm, I'm a server and there are five or so phones or, you know, you know, N phones connected to me and we are talking to each other in, in rounds. So I'm saying, can you train a model and you send me an updated model trained on your data? And then I take the average of all the phones and send it back and say, can you train again starting from this data? That's the very high level description of what's going on in federated averaging, at least, and the other versions of federated learning are at their essence, not terribly different from that. 
we skipped a lot of detail here, which like, if any of your listeners of distributed systems people, will, they, their spider sense will be tingling. Like we've elided a bunch of complexity there that like is very, very familiar to distributed systems people. A couple of ones are, are worth, worth touching on, particularly in the context of phones, and they are stragglers and drop connections. Like what about these phones that, you know, we, I've got an iPhone 6S, you've got an iPhone 11, your phone is going to train quicker than mine. But because of the algorithm I described, the algorithm, algorithm is only going to proceed as fast as the slowest phone, because it's going to wait for all the phones to phone home with their updated model. And that is, you know, generally speaking, not satisfactory. And the, the worst case scenario is what if I shut my phone off? Now everyone's stuck waiting for me to turn it back on. So Solutions to those kinds of distributed system problems that you're dealing with a heterogeneous environment and you're dealing with, you know, Murphy's law, something's going to go wrong. And especially if N is large, everything is going to go wrong eventually. These are new problems for most of us in the machine learning community. We haven't done a ton of thinking about them. We don't know a lot about them. So the, the, the joining of the distributed systems community and the machine learning community and attacking these problems, I think, is, is super interesting. The basic idea, though, is this: these rounds of communication where you take averages. There are there's one more sort of improvement you can make that I, I want to touch on, which is I mentioned that the model is a compressed version of the data, and it is. But what, can we compress it even more, or can we minimize the amount of bandwidth we're sending even more? Not just with privacy in mind, but also with saving bandwidth and battery in mind. And there are a number of strategies for doing that. Perhaps the one that's receiving the most attention right now is a technique called quantization. So it's taking a machine learning model is normally a very large number of, you know, 32-bit floats. You know, so it's hundreds of megabytes potentially for a neural network, gigabytes even. Quantization is saying, right, we're going to turn that model into integers or maybe even into booleans, ones and zeros. How much? How much can we get away with without breaking the model? And it turns out you can get away with quite a lot. And obviously that saves a huge, huge amount of bandwidth when we start sending these models around on uh, phone connections. Are there particular types of models that can be trained with federated learning? Or is it just deep deep models or any kinds of model can be trained with, with federated learning? Thank you for asking this question. This, this is, I think, one of the misconceptions about federated learning is because it's seen as quite a... Uh, like a sexy modern machine learning technology. There's a a sense in which sexy modern machine learning is synonymous with deep learning. And for the purposes of federated learning, deep learning is not special. The only requirement is that you can meaningfully take the average of two trained machine learning models. So that's actually much simpler to do for something like uh, a linear model. A linear model is just going to be a a list of numbers um, back to the the springs and the weights example, the linear model of that data is probably going to be two numbers, the gradient and the intercept. And it's, it's very very obvious how you would take the average of two of those models. You take the average of the gradients and the average of the intercepts. For a neural network, the, the idea is the same. Every There's a very large number of parameters. They have some kind of structure, and you take the element-wise average of those parameters. And if, if this was not a podcast, but a conversation, you'd see me waving my hands right now. And I'm not sure if that would add anything, but it's a little bit hard to get your head around, but it's the same basic idea as what's going on with, with a linear model. There are a couple of fairly popular approaches to machine learning that cannot be averaged in this way. And the most prominent of those is a, a trees and forests. So a decision tree or a random forest. And the reason for that is a 
two, a, a tra- if I train decision tree on one set of data and you train decision tree on on data with the same features but different data, then we're not just going to come up with a different model. We're going to come up with two models with different shapes, different structures. And that means that there's no really well-posed way of taking the average of our two models. So with the caveat that you can't apply federated averaging at least to decision trees, random forests, um, gradient boosted decision trees, all of these are you know very popular approaches in, in ad tech and things like that. In most other situations, you're going to apply it. And in particular, linear models, SVMs, deep learning, it's all they're all fine. Oh, I should add that there is one constraint. One additional constraint, however, which is that you're training these models on what can be, in some cases, pretty esoteric hardware. So a phone, an Arduino, um, some weird IoT sensor, and that presents just practical architecture problems. Like It might be tricky to get TensorFlow or Torch running on those systems, and TensorFlow or Torch or whatever you're using doesn't just have to run on those systems in the sense of inference we're talking real machine learning training on those devices and those are not problems that have been solved everywhere how can we be sure that a model trained using federated learning performs comparatively well to a model that would be trained from a central data source yeah that's a tricky one in general you federated learning is a hassle like ideally you wouldn't go to all this trouble, you would just put all the data on one computer and train it there. And of course, you don't do that with federated learning because you can't, which makes the, it a pretty unlikely situation where you can compare, compare the performance of your federated model to the performance of the model you would get if you can p- pulled all the data in one place. But certainly, the academics who've studied this have made sure to run these tests. And in some cases, you can actually prove it mathematically that the federated model converges on the same performance as a model where all the data is consolidated in the data center. Generally speaking, with a linear model, you can make you can do that proof. With a neural network, the problem with proving anything about a neural network, and federated learning isn't special here, is it's very difficult to make strong statements about why neural networks work, when they're going to work. It's very empirical, like, you know, you give it a try and it results in improved performance. Um, and that's certainly true in the case of, of federated learning. So the best I can do is say, in the situations where we have you know, fake data that we had the opportunity to pool in one place, it performed somewhat better. I've, I mean, the reason that the way I got into federated learning was running exactly these tests myself, trying to verify if these claims are in fact true, because in the case of a linear model, it's kind of it, it's clear that it would it would work. But in the case of a neural network, it's it's not obvious. Or particularly, I mean, it's, it's kind of surprising that it works. I think it's fair to say in the case of a neural network. So we, we Cloudera, built a, a simulator essentially to simulate federated learning training with pro- industrial predictive maintenance data. And we were able to show that it does indeed result in improved performance. And the, the, the intuition is, is, is clear. It's the reason the federated learning model is better than just training on your own subset of the data is that you have access to more data. But... You can think of these rounds of communication as, as as lossy as well. So federated learning will has a strict upper limit, and in some cases it won't reach that limit, that it can't do any better than putting all the data in one place. And certainly from an engineering point of view, it's a tremendous hassle compared to putting all the data in one place. Um, so if, you ha- if that op- option is available to you, if you don't care about privacy, if you've got big enough hard drives and fast enough internet connections, you should put all the data in one place. How practical is it to build federated learning? Is it is it very difficult to build, or are there good tools for building it today? 
So federated learning is kind of at the like, intersection of a really horrible Venn diagram of cryptography, differential privacy, distributed systems, machine learning. Like these are all like very, very tricky areas to work in and federated learning is in the middle of all of them. So I'm afraid to say it remains pretty tricky. There are a couple of sort of off the shelf open source approaches that uh, I want I want to flag up. TensorFlow Federated and PySift. TensorFlow Federated is what you'd expect. It's a subset of what Google uses internally. What if I understand correctly, I'm not a TensorFlow user, so I apologize to this team if I'm, if I'm mangling this description, but the open source release is missing the secure aggregation part. And the secure aggregation, we, we, we skipped over, but it's the basic idea of, of formal guarantees that the server cannot read in plain text the model. The, the, the nodes send back. And the Google, certainly one would hope, and as, as far as we know, is using that stuff internally, but it's not part of the open source TensorFlow federated suite. PySift is uh, an independent project that attempts to, uh, does include a uh, secure aggregation component. It also addresses the, it begins to address the networking issues, the dis distributed systems issues I mentioned about stragglers and, and uh, drop connections and things like that. It's a very fast moving, energetic, if you like, uh, open source project, which makes it a little bit hard to keep up with. And one thing, you know, one caveat about PySift that they have right there on the, on the GitHub page is, if you care about privacy, don't use this in production yet. These guarantees have, haven't been verified. There are probably bugs, I assume, is what they're getting out there with that warning. So the two options, in some ways, neither of them is ready for production yet, unless you are the likes of Google. So TensorFlow Federated, the, the open source bit is missing a key piece of the puddle, puzzle. And PySift is, a, is, it sounds like, you know, pre 1.0 open source software. So the situation is, in, in that sense, a little bit unsatisfactory. If you don't care about privacy as much, if you if what the problem you're trying to solve is compression, saving data, saving power, the situation is much better. There, the the stakes are much the much lower. Like you, you can only screw up so much, and you notice if you screwed up more quickly than you do when you screw up privacy. So there, there are more off-the-shelf tools. Like just any, anything that can handle network I/O is going to get you up and running, plus a machine learning library. And what about other practical problems with federated learning? For example, if I have a very large model and I want to send this model to a phone, you know, is, is that going to be a problem? Is it a problem to get, you know, the, the bandwidth and the storage and the CPU concerns? Are there some restrictions involved here? Yeah, I mean, at the very basic level, there's an idea that what's going on on your phone is obscure to most owners of the phone. Like, I, I don't understand what my phone does, and I, I do machine learning for a living. So this idea that you're asking consent here to do this kind of thing on people's phones is, is a little bit slippery, I think. Like, none of us read these agreements. And if embedded in that, this agreement is not just that we're going to do something that, if we screw up, is going to compromise your privacy, and even if we don't screw up, is going to cost you battery, is uh, an interesting one. What most production phone deployments do is only train like roughly once a day or when it's on mains power, when it's plugged in. And that's, you know, for the very obvious reason that using the CPU or if they have it, if it has it on a GPU on the phone is going to be quite battery intensive, setting aside the issue of communication. Communication, we've already touched on a, way, a few of the ways in which you can 
many ways, bandwidth concerns. And some of these concerns, I mean, it depends where you are in the world, how acute these concerns are on a cell phone. Like the US, uh, where we are, is infamously expensive for bandwidth, like even relative to the cost of living, it's very high. And it might, you know, you know, surprisingly cheap in some parts of the world, like Europe's half the price, but then there are like bits of sub-Saharan Africa where it's pennies for a gigabyte of bandwidth. So like local context is, is relevant here to how much you care about compression and, and, and data. Um, but we, we touched on the ways of doing that. Quantization is one of them. There are twists you can do to the communication protocol as well, not just quantization, but having a phone sit out a few rounds. If it Basically, if it's trained the model and it kind of hasn't changed much, then there's really not much point in uploading it again. So just have it sit out until it's taken enough photos or sent enough text messages to change the model significantly. Yeah, that's it for practical issues, I think, that I've got right now. We talked about privacy earlier, and now we're talking about federated learning. Help me bridge the gap between those two a little bit more. How does federated learning achieve differential privacy? Yep. So federated learning, by keeping all the data on the nodes, solves the most glaring security hole in your data, which is that you have to give the data in plain text to someone else. That no longer happens in federated learning. Vanilla federated learning stops there, though. It does not address the problem that we talked about also at the start, which is that in principle, you can invert a machine learning model. You can look carefully at a machine learning model and figure out things that were true of the training data. You know, it, it, and that's simply, again, because it's a compressed version of the training data in some ways. So federated learning isn't going to help with that. It does. You are in general protected from other nodes in the network. So and that's because all communication, all them, all your your model only is only ever shown to the server. So the server is the the vulnerable point, if you like, for that attack of model inversion. But really, for production use of federated learning, when you care about privacy, either because you legally have to, because your customers have very strong preferences, or because you just don't want to paint a target on your back and have this data, then there are extra steps you need to take, and they are the options really are differential privacy or secure aggregation. Differential privacy, we kind of talked about, it's the idea of add, adding noise to the data. And in I, the example I used was adding noise to the, the training data, if you like. If you, you know, I, I said, add noise to your salary, and then you can take the average. But there's nothing to stop you adding noise to the machine learning model. So machine learning model is just a list of numbers, add some noise to it, upload it, and then it becomes harder to invert the model. The other option you have is secure aggregation. So secure aggregation is one version of multi-party computation. It's this idea that we can come up with ways of changing the algebraic operations that are performed. That means we recover the right answer, but we don't actually ever, ever see the plain text ingredients to that calculation. That probably didn't make sense. So let me, let me back up to like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Say I wanted to add two numbers together, but I didn't want to reveal what the two numbers are. I just want you to be able to recover the right answer. What I might do, if, if there's just two of us, we can't do it. But if there was three of us, we could do it. What, we, what I would do is take my number, it might be my salary, and add some very large number to it, just a constant very large number to it. Pass it on to the next person in the line. They will add their salary to the sum of my salary and that large number. And then they'll pass it back to you and you'll add your salary. 
and then you'll pass it back to me and I can subtract that very big number that I originally added. And now I know exactly, this is not differential privacy anymore. There's no noise here. I know exactly what the sum of our salaries is. And none of the three of us could recover anyone else's salary in that process. That's an example of multi-party computation. You can do a version of that with um, with uh, federated learning called secure aggregation. And it's a bit different because the server is special. In multi-party computation that I just described, those three people were peers they, in some ways. But a, a server in federated learning is a bit special. So you need just adding constants won't work. You need to do something called homomorphic encryption, which encrypts the numbers such that the basic algebraic operations still work. So I, I, I take the encrypted version of two and the encrypted version of two and add them together and get an encrypted version of four. And I decrypt it and I recover four. There are, it depends how I encrypt the data. If I encrypt the data with MD5, that idea is not going to work. Addition doesn't work uh, on MD5 encrypted data. But there are encryption algorithms that for, for which that will work. So to come back to your question, I, I said a lot about secure aggregation there, which was kind of not off topic, but probably more, more than you wanted. The idea is federated learning plugs the first and biggest and worst hole, which is that you share the data in plain text. But if privacy is the concern, then there are additional steps you might want to consider, differential privacy and secure aggregation. Do you see many people in the industry using federated learning? Have you seen many practical applications of it, or do you think it's still too hard to implement even with the uh, tooling that is out there? So certainly we, Google are using it. We know this. Well, I was going to say they're very public. They're fairly public about what they're doing with it, and that's to their credit. There's been some research out of other companies that could in principle have applications for this so there's a samsung paper for example using this and you know you can you can think of applications for this but the other big use of federated learning like well in production is probably the wrong word because these aren't really technology companies using it in like live production systems but it's being used to solve like batch problems in healthcare drug discovery so we mentioned right at the start that health data is like extremely sensitive, like there are ethical and like legal constraints on what you do with the data. And carefully implemented federated learning plus differential privacy and or secure aggregation would seem to get around those issues and allow, for example, two hospitals or many hospitals or many drug companies to pool their training data and discover you know, life-saving drugs more quickly. Now, I'm not super familiar with how this work is being conducted in the US, and it wouldn't, I don't know if this claim is true, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn, given the you know, political climate around healthcare in the US, that it wasn't happening. But it is happening in Europe. There are, the European Union put out a call for proposals a couple of years ago, and then gave out a bunch of money to have people set up essentially these federations in the legal sense that you can join, and then the federation comes and literally puts a PC in your office, like a you know some hardware in your office that is the node of a federated learning network. So there is like a zoo of startups that have come up around this healthcare ecosystem in Europe in particular. Okin, O-W-K-I-N, is perhaps the furthest along of those, but there are a couple of, and they, they've established a thing called the Substra Foundation. And then there's a thing called Vantage Six as well, and and you know, these are in some ways somehow connected to the European Union, which always has the consequence of making them a little bit difficult to read. But 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 they are 
working on healthcare in the European Union. There are a couple of startups as well who, um, in one case, uh, appears to be trying to build a platform for this. So you as a a company whose core competency is not machine learning or, or federated learning can ship federated learning either into production or you can pull with other companies who might be your competitors or who you might be constrained from sharing data with and be mediated by these companies. And the two I know about are Cape Privacy and Data Fleets. Cape, Cape Privacy is interesting because they're, they, they're doing the work to publicly fill in the gap I mentioned in the coverage of TensorFlow Federated. TensorFlow Federated doesn't have an open source implementation of encrypted machine learning that I know of, like wired into TensorFlow Federated, and uh, Cape Privacy are doing the work uh, in, in open source to fill that gap in, which is, is, is great. As we begin to close off, let's talk a little bit about where you work, which is Cloudera, I believe? That's right. That's right. I work at Cloudera, which, you know, my, my bosses will kill me for saying this, but is a is best known as a Hadoop vendor. And you know, I, I don't know the details, but I suspect that's where we make most of our money as well. We're not known as a machine learning company. I came in through an acquisition of a little research lab called Fast Forward Labs, um, which Hillary Mason started in, in Brooklyn a f- few years ago. And we got acquired and sort of absorbed into the, the, the mothership. And the business model for Fast Forward Labs is, is kind of weird and interesting. We, we release white papers, and originally we released them to very well-paying customers who got you know, a nice physical book and read them. And since we've been acquired, we've started giving more of the stuff away. So the federated learning work I did, which is you know, take, will take you an hour to read if you're interested, you can see at federated.fastforwardlabs.com. And it's a report explaining some of the things I've said. And... In, in some cases, Cloudera customers are sufficiently far along in their journey towards like machine learning nirvana that they're interested in applying technologies like federated learning in production. So we have helped in a couple of cases sort of scope how that would be done and, and figure out in when it would work and when it wouldn't. Do you know much about what's on the cutting edge of federated learning? Like Google was obviously earlier to earlier to the federated learning game. What kinds of cutting edge developments would a company like Google be working on? Yeah, so we've we've touched on on the issue of like privacy like guarantees, like you know, tying the server's hands to make it logically impossible for anyone to invert the data. That's certainly probably the most area the the area of most active research. It's also where the money is going to be made in this field because it opens up healthcare to an extent it's not currently open. The other area I think it's, it's worth touching on is customizing federated learning models at the, the user level, at the node level. So if I'm participating in the Google keyboard, Gboard model, and having it predict what I'm going to write next, in some ways, I, I benefit from pooling my data or indirectly pooling my data via federated learning with lots of other people. But you can imagine a situation where that would make my model worse. Like I, I'm British and I, you know, as you may be able to guess, I'm British and I, I, I live in the US. So if you pool my language with the language of my neighbors, then the small amount of training data I contribute is going to be overwhelmed by people who speak very differently to me. And that may actually make my experience worse. So customizing federated learning, allowing me to benefit from the you know, broadly defined English that is used all over the world, but allowing it to you know, give more weight, if you like, to my own training data, because I you know, use an S instead of a Z or whatever, or I say Z, 
that kind of thing is, I think, uh, a really interesting area in which consumer-federated learning is going to get much, much more interesting. The other area, I think, this is, is I think it's wrong to call this research because this is something that like hobbyists can and are working on. So it's not research in the you know you need to go to a conference to work on this stuff, but is applying federated learning on commodity, very very low priced hardware. Like I've been playing around with this a bit myself. Like I gave myself a for quarantine, I gave myself a Raspberry Pi W, which is one of these Raspberry Pis that costs ten dollars. It's like a real computer for ten dollars, completely insane, and you know it's slow, but I've got federated learning running on it and i've got i've got a a cluster of one node so i'm not doing anything very interesting with it yet it's really just a proof of concept but this sort of esoteric hardware that hobbyists have access to because of its cheap price is another area i see a lot of really interesting work going on and that's true of machine learning generally but federated learning because it's a way of pooling that kind of hardware is a particularly interesting um, application cool well this sounds like a great place to close off mike thanks for coming on the show it's been great talking to you My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Jeff.